Hello, welcome to the Derps Talk About Games. I'm your co-host, Mango. And I am your co-host, Buddy. And today we're going to talk a little bit about player feedback. But before we do that, Buddy, why don't you tell the folks at home what it is we do on this podcast? Well, it's pretty simple. Uh, on this podcast, we like to talk about games. Um, actually, I feel like player feedback is something that we've been like slowly addressing over the past couple of months. Um, as I have been enmeshed in the kind of controversy, I guess, about, like, the Battle for Azeroth release and the feedback that's that's flooding into Blizzard about it. Um, we've talked a little bit about some of the changes that have come through Pathfinder, you know, and, like, the player feedback, and so I feel like dedicating, like, a whole real old episode is, like, is, like, the way to go. Sure. Um, th this is your idea. So did you want to focus on specific pieces of feedback, or did you want to talk about... Like the so, what, so something I'm interested by, because I, I want to see, in a certain sense, I feel kind of like I am an expert, let's say, on sort of like the WoW side of that equation, and I feel like you've been following the Pathfinder side of that equation much sure. closer than I have. And so in a certain sense, I almost want to like compare notes between the two, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, to see, uh, to kind of see what we get. Um, and to a certain extent, I think part of that is uh, a kind of, like, misunderstanding, almost, that goes into sort of, like, the development cycle. I typically I typically come down on the side of devs, which is, should be obvious, right? I work at a video game company. I know devs. I know community people, right? Um, so it's easy for me to kind of be... Like, I guess I'll just admit that bias up front, right? Um, that uh, that when, when it comes down to kind of the fans complaining about something and the devs answering that complaint, I typically say, yep, the devs are right. Um, yeah, and, and sim similarly, I, I don't think I'm as sympathetic to you on kind of like, um, you know, like expertise fronts, right? Like, I think you, you, you tend to side with the devs more ideologically than I do. Um, mm. I don't know if that's the best way to express it, but in terms of, like, software stuff, I, I am a software engineer, and number of complaints I've seen, although I will say they have been less so recently that are like, oh, this should be, like, a week's worth of work, and I'm like, no. Oh, yeah, I would no talk about talking. how easy it is to code things. Yeah. Oh, my God, that's my favorite. <laughs> it's like, how, how would you even know, right? Like, yeah. You know, uh, and, you know, maybe, maybe that reflects on devs, you know, I, I you know, I have some of the Riot tech. When I used to be, when we used to play LOL a lot, I would read the the Riot engineering blog because it was interesting. But just some of their posts about their refactoring basically described, I think, for one of their projectile systems, and it was like, basically, they said like we had this whole bunch of spaghetti, and then we cleaned it up, and you know, like we we had this pile of spaghetti, and then we took a three months to untangle it. So now it's not spaghetti anymore. And, you know, sometimes that means that it was coded poorly in the first place. And there's a number of reasons why you get there. You know, yeah. that doesn't mean that they're faultless for it, but it does mean that, like, maybe doing improvements isn't the easiest thing. But I think that's less kind of relevant to what we want to talk about, right? Like, the, that, that technical stuff is, um, I think, bears mentioning, but I think it's less relevant to kind of, like, the, uh, the yeah, ideal I, side I, of I think I agree with you um, because, to a certain extent, I think uh, I, I was very uncharitable to people leaving like wow feedback recently. Um, and even though I kind of stand by what I said, I think a lot of people, especially when it comes to Battle for Azeroth, are acting as partisans, right? Where they are defining themselves and their feedback by their own sort of bias for the Horde or the Alliance. Like the example, like the example here is. Um, like the the this interaction between uh, 
Tyrande and Nathanos blight collar, right? Where, you know, Night Elf Alliance partisans were essentially complaining that, like, it was bullshit that Tyrande, who is this uber-powerful, you know, priestess, high priestess of her goddess that just, like, went through this crazy ritual or whatever, can't kick the shit out of Nathanos, who's, like, quote-unquote, just a human, right? Or just a forsaken, right? Um... That he's not, that he is not, like, deserving of kind of, like, fighting on equal ground. Um, and from my perspective, I think that that's kind of, like, uncharitable towards, like, Forsaken players, right? Um, and in a lot of ways, like, yeah, I, like, I understand the complaint, but this is, this is a thing where kind of equity is, is needed, and equality needs to kind of be enforced on both sides, and sometimes that means, you know, because if you're a Forsaken player, you don't want to feel like Nathanos Blightcaller is like a, a, a weak piece of shit that can just be taken out in five seconds by by Tyrande. Um, but the interesting thing here, and the thing that like really catalyzed this for me, is that they revised this stuff. They actually revised a lot of this stuff. Um, which I don't think I have ever seen Blizzard do before, which is revise story-level content, right, in order to appease people, like, from, like, PTR feedback. Huh. Um, and there's a lot in that content that I think is, like, good, like, good revisions. There's a part where, um, this, by the way, is spoilers for 8.1, um, so if you're trying to avoid 8.1 stuff... Uh, I'm going to be talking about it a little bit more uh, in depth and more complexly, but so there's a part in 8.1 where uh, uh, Tyrande enters into like a big night elf, or I'm, I'm sorry, a big forsaken fortification, and she says no mercy, right? And she locks up all of the forsaken, but then she just in the original version she just left, so she says no mercy, but then she leaves all of the forsaken alive, and so they change that, so she walks in there and she kills all of them except for one, right? And that and I think that's a good change, right? Obviously, I think that that makes a lot of sort of um, like a lot of sense and everything kind of like that. But the change that I found really interesting was they changed the interaction at the end in order to appease essentially, right? Like these night elf partisan players um, from the way that I, I looked at it. Uh, Nathanos gets much more fucked up over the course of like their fight or whatever. Um, and it is, they, he also gets a buff from the two Valkyr that are with him, which explain how he is able to kind of go toe to toe with Tarande. And I really don't know how, part of me thinks that that's like a negative change. Um, in the sense that I think the problem is that is a misperception of kind of like Tyrande or Malfurion's power level, if that makes sense. Um, where like, yeah, if you are telling people that Malfurion is the strongest druid ever of all time, you kind of can't have him go up against, you know, like you, you, you he needs to be on, on equal footing with somebody like Nathanos Blycaller. Um, but the interesting thing is that they powered up Nathanos to that level, which I think is kind of obscene and a little too, you know, like a little too out there and crazy rather than kind of just say, no, these, you know, like they're not as strong as you might think. Um, but, uh, but anyway, so all of that happened and I was really flabbergasted to see, to see like these kinds of story level changes. Uh, they didn't change everything. Most notably the Dark Ranger stuff that I was talking about where, um, you know, people were complaining about how the Forsaken were running around uh, resurrecting night elves into dark rangers, um, undead, you know, like undead ranger elves. Um, 
the, that those elves immediately turned on the people that they had like died defending. Um, and while I under kind of, and while I kind of understand like the intuition there, I also think it's a part of sort of like the forsaken fantasy that like you go and you do that. There's a long history of forsaken kind of doing this and wow. And they didn't make any kind of changes along those lines, which I think is, uh, uh, which I think is like interesting because essentially what this says is the wow devs, took a look at story-level feedback, and they said, you know what? Some of this stuff is fair. Let's address it, right? Which is really... I've never seen that before. Yeah. Um, and I'm really interested by it. Yeah, I, I wonder if it's a thing where, like... They saw it and said this is fair, and, like, they thought it was, like, so egregious that they had to fix it, and, like, they'll never do it again. Because it is interesting. That, or, or maybe... I don't know. Maybe part of it's a desire just to pander a little bit harder, right? Like... Mm. This, this, you know, what's the 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 customer is always right, kind of in in that sense, right? Like if they're afraid that people are actually going to drop out of the game if they don't address these things, you know, maybe the wow numbers are more dire than we know. They stopped reporting them a number of years ago. Um, I, I wouldn't think so, but uh, yeah, it has been suggested uh, that the initial version of things was. Um, like unfinished and that this is like the finished version of it um i think that's actually kind of a little bit half true people have talked about the sort of um like Tarande killing the forsaken as that where if you played them back to back it seemed as though the forsaken were always set to die there and that they just hadn't like coded in that the, part the triggers or that whatever triggers, yeah, yeah. yeah that like triggers all of the forsaken models to go through a death animation or whatever it is kind of thing um but uh, but the stuff with Nathanos seems to not be that, right? That seems to be, like, a real and kind of, like, legitimate top-to-bottom change um, to sort of address, like, their power levels in, in their fight. Um, so, yeah, I think... Uh, so, I, th I, I don't know. I think that kind of stuff is really interesting. And the other half of this, when it comes to, like, wow, is that there's a lot of talk about um, beta feedback... Uh, with stuff like Azerite armor, people have been leading, leaving feedback since the beta, and there weren't a lot of changes, and now some of the changes that we're seeing to Azerite armor coming into 7.1, um, specifically that there's going to be a new currency that allows you to target specific pieces of Azerite armor, um, and that emissary quests go higher with Azerite armor because it's tough to get higher than, you know, 340 baseline you know pieces pieces of armor um and so i thought that that was you know like i thought that that was uh, uh an interesting an interesting thing because it kind of suggests that to a certain extent the devs were holding the line against the player base and that has since cracked and in 8.1 they are addressing some of those um addressing some of those feedback uh, issues. But the question I have, I guess, uh, is do you see, like, a similar kind of, like, process in the Pathfinder side of things, right? Like, are there issues that Pathfinder people have been talking about, you know, since, I guess we could call it... Gen Con? Yeah, since, like, Gen yeah. Con or something, um, but that are only getting addressed, like, now? Okay, so so I think the single biggest thing... Um, I, and so there's two parts to this. The first part is is that... There's this kind of explanation of, like, design goals that kind of reframes this discussion, right? Like, um, I think people were treating this like a video game beta, which is like, you know, this is like what you're going... Th 
this is, you know, if everything goes well, this is what it's going to be in the final version. And they've made clear that, like, they, when they had to choose between two versions of systems to test, they always picked the more extreme one because they could learn more from that feedback. Um, and that it might be radically different in the final, in the final 2.0. Oh, um, that's interesting. Yeah. And this, this has some people worried because they're like, well, that's, there's, there's, they're cutting feedback off or they're, they're cutting kind of like the, the playtest off in December and they're going to just break the 2.0 for six months and we're not getting any playtest time on that. And how could we possibly, how could they possibly develop a game without getting our input um, type of deal, which, you know, obviously I'm being a little bit uncharitable there, but you know, that the, the point is, is if there's something bad in there, um, it doesn't get caught if no one looks at it. And I think that the, the single biggest single change there has been resonance. Um, and uh, they have said that resonance was kind of like the most extreme version of the system they wanted to test. Um, but there was, I don't know if it was based on volume of feedback, but they definitely said, we hear you. The resonance isn't super popular. Um, we are going, and so they, they said that they can't, overhaul the entire resonance system for the play test like that'd be too big of a change to introduce in patch notes but they are they did put out a kind of duplicate of one of the pathfinder society playtest adventures with a different resonance style system in it um to, to put testing on that system and that system basically says resonance um is the number of pieces of gear you can wear and it takes away kind of like the needing to spend resonance to uh to, to use consumable items and usable items. Um, and then you can, you get like a second pool of, of, uh, that's charisma based of those numbers for both your spell points and for powering up items. Um, so like consumable items have a base effect and then you can power them up with, uh, with, with, with one of these spell points to get a bigger effect out of them. You know, so carrot rather than stick. Um, um, and I think that that's a neat thing. And, and, you know, I, you know, we, 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 we we've talked about it since we haven't actually played with it. So, I haven't. I don't have a good grasp on how it how it actually feels, um, but uh, it's interesting because part of me wants to say like you know if they do want feedback on this. Another part of me thinks that maybe they're part of the reason their motivation for doing this is to to show that you know this isn't necessarily like residence isn't necessarily going to be in the end game because um, I've seen not a ton but I've seen a fair amount of uh, you know like my group isn't interested in second edition anymore type of thing, or, you know, we're just going to stick with first edition types. It, it, it hasn't been universal. Um, mm -hmm. um, I also think part that's, that's part of the, the biggest issue that Pais you pays that pies faces with this play test is there's a, I think a fair amount of, of feedback. That's just like, that is just, this isn't first edition. That's bad. Make it like first edition. Um, and you know that that's kind of always the case. I think, like I, I don't think I've I've ever seen a game product that has gone through a beta thing that hasn't been like, why did you change the thing, um, um in, in in some regard, um. But that's kind of been the the, the the two biggest pieces that I've seen so far. There's a bunch of other little stuff, um, that has been variously just like I think the the the. Uh, Something that, that, that has come through and kind of like the in-between-the-lines is the way I want to put it. It has been kind of weird. Is, um... Uh, how do I... Uh, so, you know how, like, people are, are not super happy with this 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 1 to 20, some people call it the treadmill, right? Um, like, every level you get a, 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 a plus 1 bonus. Um, and uh, people have been talking about, well, why not get rid of it? Why not make it half strength, right? 
um, and Mark Seifter um, on one of their streams has said, you know, that's a great thing that comes in uh, that, that could come in as like a variant rule in either the Dungeon Master's Guide or something a little bit further down the line. And we're building this system such that doing that math shouldn't be difficult to do, right? Like it, it, it's it's not like um, like part of the problem with Pathfinder 1 is that doing something like that, like pulling the base attack bonus out of Pathfinder 1 so fundamentally screwed with um, the game systems that it was really hard to do without a lot of major surgery on the rules. But this plus one bonus is so kind of like, like the, the way it figures into the math, it's so kind of, uh, how do I want to put this? Not separated, but like partitioned that removing it sh should just be a matter of subtracting some numbers and it shouldn't be a big deal uh, to do that. And so that kind of re revealing, you know, like making this, these, rules modular enough that that kind of thing can happen with minimal minimal problems um and you know at some level i don't think that developers are obligated in any way to explain their reasoning behind everything but i definitely enjoy it and i think it's interesting i do think it helps calm fears um in a lot of ways uh any thoughts on that i do uh, so something that the league developers said a lot um, like, part of me wonders how much of this is just about, like, when you as a developer kind of, like, open up the floodgates for feedback like this, um, what are you allowing into yourself, in a way? Like, like, to, like to a certain extent, should you act as, um, I guess, like, a, a, an equivalent example might be, like, you know, like, Rockstar. Are there... Rockstar people who are, you know, monitoring feedback and changing the game for Red Dead Redemption 2? No, obviously not, right? Like, Red Dead Redemption 2 is the game that they're making, and they have a good sense of what that is, and they don't, they're not going through, like, a beta period or anything along those kinds of lines. Um, but I think, you know, you have to do PTR, and you have to do, you know, the PBE for League, and you have to do kind of, like, a public playtest for for Pathfinder when it comes to a lot of these sorts of games. Um, and to a certain extent, you're kind of like, you, you just have to open up like the, like the floodgates, but something that the league developers would talk about a lot when it came to, you know, managing their community and interacting with the community. And they had a lot of encouragement for developers and designers themselves to go and post on the forums and talk to people about why they are doing what they are doing on the forums. In fact, I actually think that that is one of the most interesting sort of time periods in League of Legends career. Um, kind of that like season like one, two, three period um where there was a lot of developer talk uh back and forth on the forums for like how stuff worked and what you know what it looked like because you got a lot of insight into kind of like how they were thinking about implementing changes and what changes they would implement and why they wouldn't implement certain changes because there's a lot of like bad feedback that gets to them and they can kind of like quickly and succinctly debunk why this is a not good way to um to kind of like go about the game right um World of Warcraft doesn't do that, though, right? Like, everything on the designer level gets filtered through the community managers um, or watcher, the game director, um, Ian Hazakostas, um, who kind of the, essentially, I'm sure, repeat things that the designing team 
tell to him, right? Which is, you know, this is what we thought about X, this is what we thought about Y, this is why we're not doing this, this is why we are doing that kind of, you know, like kind of that sort of stuff. But anyway, so the thing that the League developers used to talk about all the time is how the, the forums are a vocal minority and that you cannot cater to them exclusively. Because even if they are angry about the game, right, there are a lot of people who are caught in like a kind of um, apathetic limbo that they don't want to kind of like screw with, right? Most people enjoy uh, playing, you know, League of Legends, playing World of Warcraft. And if you enjoy playing World of Warcraft, you typically don't get on Reddit and make a giant post about, you know, uh, how good the game is, right? But if you are having a bad time, it's very easy for you to make a big post about how bad the game is. And because that post is typically like angry and anger appeals to people and gets shared a lot more commonly than I guess contentedness or satisfaction, right? It's a lot easier for those kinds of posts to blow up all over the front page and people to say, yeah, you know what? I never really thought about it, but I really agree with you. I think that this is bullshit, right? Um, yeah. And so I'm kind of interested by like how, you know, like it's there, you can't make every change that is, that is asked of you because obviously the way communities work is going to be working against you and it's going to be kind of like riling people up against your, um, your sort of like practices. But like, how do you extract the grains of truth from that? Um, yeah, no, which, it, it, which is a tough question. No, it, it's interesting because very similarly, Mark Seifter again said that like a lot of features, like, you know, people are, the, the forums seem very negative, and it's like the surveys they get back have like some of these features have like sixty to ninety percent approval rating on them, um, and you know it's you know you only go make a post on the forum if you're really ang you know if if you're really angry about something you're much less to go and say like I think this is great. Um, there's also he also his point also was that like you know you know even if you do have those 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 high success rates right sometimes the the people who are grumbling have valid points right like um and you know maybe they're finding things that are edge cases that need to be solved or maybe they are kind of like seeing into kind of uh the depths of the system um in a way that you know a lot of players just don't ever encounter um uh or maybe you know they you know it's uh Angry GM on, I think it's the last episode of uh, Digressions and Dragons, uh, put a point on this, something like this, right? Like, you know, Ranger, like, 5e has, like, a weird relationship with the Ranger. The Rangers, I think, generally viewed to be, not be very good. Um, it's like, if the people who are coming to your game to play a Ranger aren't happy, um, but everybody else is, what's kind of your your move right and sometimes that move is to get rid of the ranger um and you know what what what's what you know what are the kind of like balances around that um another thing kind of in in, in that uh mark seifter vein is like you know is is sometimes right like like sometimes you you just have to ignore uh the people that are um that are that are complaining but uh also, sometimes the people that are complaining are also, like, the people who, regardless of whether or not they are, you know, they are, the correctness of their complaint, they're the people who care the most. And so, you know, right, like, what's, how, how do I put this? A lot of D&D &D and a lot of tabletop games can be fixed by a good DM. That doesn't mean the system is good. 
Does that make sense? Oh, I absolutely agree with that. Um, uh, and I mean, obviously, I am the kind of D, like I am the kind of like GM that that you know I view the system as guidelines that I can freely and do freely um, tinker with as uh, kind of as necessary. Um, so yeah, I I very much agree with that sentiment. Yeah, um, the, the, the 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 larger point being that like you know. Just because it works in 90% of circumstances because, you know, there's an easy, like, you know, a, a competent GM can deal with it. That doesn't mean that you should leave the system like that. You should still put some effort into fixing that problem, into fixing those problems if you see them. Um, this, that was the thing in, in, that, I, that I saw in, like, a recent angry, a couple recent angry GM articles. Because he, he had one about, um, he had one about how, like, the system should fix this thing, and then he then his next article is about how to do it yourself, um, and he you know he he's got a very interesting way of speaking. So I'll I'll, I'll try and link them in the, in the description uh, below. But uh, his his discussion on this stuff is always, is always fascinating. But I, I think it is important, right? That like yeah, in a way, I think that that is a big divergent point from uh, like the Pathfinder Two E stuff and like the WoW stuff because there is. You know, like, there is that middleman of the of the GM. Um, the WoW players really don't have any kind of control over, like, the systems that, that come in. Their only recourse, really, is feedback. Um, but hypothetically, in Pathfinder, right, like, there is that middleman of, of, the, of the GM yeah, to I kind of, like, mitigate some change. You know, like, if some change you don't like comes through... Right, you can just ask your GM to wash it, and he can for you. You know what I mean? Yeah, and and you know they have asked that people don't house rule the the playtest for feedback purposes, and that makes perfect sense to me. Um, but there's even some level of that where, like, even if you're not house ruling anything, right? Like, there are, the GM has agency because he has to, right? And so he might. It's not like not even that like the house rule level, right? Like some situation that isn't accounted for. He just might just make a call and it works out and maybe the system should be handling that kind of thing at that level or like, you know, just guidance level type things like, you know, like the game feel type stuff, I think varies widely GM to GM regardless of like, even if they're playing the rules at the exact same way. Um, it's, it's, it's just a, a radically different way of dealing with things, which is, I think, both a, a, a blessing and a bane to, to tabletop games. Um, yeah. No, I super feel that. And I'm really interested in... Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm, like, really interested in that uh, interaction, I guess, between between sort of, like, systems and how, and how these things kind of, like, break down and work. In a way, I actually think Pathfinder early is doing the right thing by kind of, like, listening. I like the that that, like, angry GM ethos, right? That, like, yeah, sure, hypothetically, you know, the GM is the last line of defense and can fix the system on the fly or something like that, but, you know, we, we, we need to treat these rules as if they are always being run raw and and we can't, and we can't allow that to kind of say... Because in a way, I almost think that, like, encourages, like, a certain sort of, like, laziness, Um where you go, ah, the GM can fix that. 
Um, something along those lines. I, in, I, in a certain sense, I think that it's proper to do it in certain places, right? Like, I actually think that uh, Paizo would end up agreeing with me when it comes to stuff like the source books that come out, right? Like Ultimate Wilderness or whatever. A lot of these rules are very optional rules. And I think that that's an important piece because not all games look alike. And so, yeah, if you are running a wilderness campaign, Ultimate Wilderness is going to add in a bunch of rules for you, right? That you can kind of like tweak and plug and play sort of thing. Um, versus if you're running a political campaign and ultimate intrigue is the thing that you're going for and you're going to be plugging in all of these rules. Um, one of the things that I think Paizo has done a very good job about is kind of f making things optional and modular yeah. in in a way that... Even like 3.5 didn't do this to a certain extent, right? Like, And, and I would say it's kind of like part of its problems. Like, It implicitly wanted to do this, but never really presented itself this way. Like, All of the rules were, you know, hypothetically... Like, hypothetically, there is a version of 3.5 where you play it and all of these rules are in the game, right? Because of the way that they are just, like, worded. But Paizo never approaches it that way, right? It's very rare that you would find a game that is using both social combat from Ultimate Intrigue and, you know, the the wilderness exploration rules from alternate wilder, uh, Ultimate Wilderness. Because, like, and even, if, and even if you have those two, you're also, you're not using rules from, you know, the uh, tech guide... Yeah, horror adventures, you know what I mean? Like, there is no version of Pathfinder that has literally every single rule in the game. Um, just because that would be impossible. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree. I also think a part of um, what makes kind of the, the, the Pathfinder experience a little bit more tenable feedback-wise is that I think the, like, WoW is a game played by millions of people. Pathfinder, I don't like the, the community, I think it's just smaller, so... It's, it's easier to kind of, like, sort through it. Like, I think that it is not unreasonable for somebody at Pi to have read every forum post. And I don't mean that, like, they should do that, but, like, it is something they could feasibly do, right? Yeah. Like, WoW does not have that luxury. Um, like, there's no way you could collect every piece of feedback from every place that people bitch about WoW or League yeah. of Legends, right? Like, just, they're just too big. Um, and, you know, that's, that's kind of, like, an advantage of being a, a relatively niche community. Um I guess the downside of that is that you know you you you, you can't as safely you can't as safely ignore some of them. Um, but that's that's interesting. I, I wanted to go back for a second to the to the point where you were talking about um, kind of the developers like this this feedback in the beta that hasn't been implemented until this like eight point one ish patch. Now you you said you you perceive this as being kind of like the developers holding the line. I could see, like, an alternate interpretation being, like, um, you know, they weren't listening or something along the lines of, like, they couldn't get the fix in fast enough for launch, so they held it off until 8.1 when they could be technically sure of it. Um, and I'm, like, you know, just entertaining that as kind of, like, assume that that's, like, a possibility. I'm not sure how I feel about, like, that as, like, a, an excuse use set if that makes sense right like you know we'll fix it in 8.1 type type deal um interesting yeah i mean i think to a certain extent it is something that that players don't take into account right they don't take into account technical hurdles they don't take into account qa and stuff like that um and i've seen this crop up in other spots a lot of the time it crops up in um class specific spaces where you know people will say 
or do or like request something which is actually like a complex technical hurdle even if it sounds kind of like simple and straightforward i can't really think of a good example of this off the top of my head um but like there is a certain there's a certain barrier when it comes to like wow or league of legends that is um only surmountable by technology and engineering um like monk weapon animations yeah you know like it's just like and and sometimes those systems just are archaic oh actually a great piece of this is the backpack in wow right um, right. Yeah. They, they, like they said this for a long time. People are like, "Why, when we have thirty space bag slots, uh, is our backpack still sixteen spots or whatever?" And they basically came out and they said, "Honestly, the backpack code is buried under so much other code that we just cannot." Like, I'd love to make that change, but we can't because if we did, we would, you know, completely, we would like completely like futz with things. Um, and that was a, that was something from like five you know, eight years ago, I have no idea, like a long time ago, um, that now has been updated, right? Um, if you add an authenticator to your account, you get four extra backpack slots. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so like that, that is definitely, uh, that's definitely like a good example of something where, you know, ideally speaking, we would like to see this change implemented, but like the technical hurdles of it are just so huge we so, can't afford to do that okay so so um, that that's a longer term endemic issue but the thing i was I, I was trying to get at and i probably wasn't clear about it is that like you know let's say you know there's there's an issue like you know people provide all this feedback for the legion uh, not legion uh bfa beta um and you know some des some developer says you know i see that i think it's valid but we can't implement it for launch. So we're going to launch the game knowing that the system is bad and fix it for 8.1, right? Um, and I'm not saying that that's necessarily what happened here, but it's something that I could definitely see happening in some capacity um, at, at various times for various things. And just kind of the thoughts, my, like, I am, there's part of me that says, you know, this is okay, right? Like, this is the way that things work sometimes. There's also part of me that says, you know, that's a shitty thing to do to your paying customers on launch, right? And I think that, you know, obviously, I, I, I think that, that the answer is, is like, it depends on, like, the scope and scale of that change. Um, but I was wondering if you, had any, if you had any specific thoughts on kind of, like, that particular, that particular interaction there. Um, I think it's fair i almost want to say that this happened in legion to a certain extent which is not quite the same um in the sense that like there were a lot of things that um so so i think there's a big difference between legion and battle for azeroth just because legion was a big overhaul of a lot of endgame systems right it was the implementation of the world quest system um to sort of replace dailies um and it was the implementation of mythic plus um, to kind of replace end game, you know, dungeon content, right? You know, like it's no longer running a heroic or running a mythic. It's, you know, this is the mythic plus we're going to, we're going to run it a lot. Like we run, you know, keystones in, in Diablo or kind of like whatever else. Um, legendaries are, are a system that are kind of along this line. Uh, the artifacts are a system sort of kind of along this line. And I think that that, those things were so untested that it generated a lot of this kind of um, 
like these kinds of feedback and changes, right? I, in a lot of ways, I actually think that uh, Battle for Azeroth and Legion have a lot in common in the way that they launched, because I don't think people really remember a lot of the problems to Legion um, in the launch. Like, I remember secondary stats were like a huge thing, and you could get like 50 eye level upgrades, but because the secondary stats were so out of whack, um, it could be a downgrade for you, um, and so they had to do all this item tuning in order to fix that. Um, I remember, I mean, everybody was bitching about legendaries, including myself. I was incredibly disappointed to get Agrimar's Stride, which is just like a flat movement speed buff and not a throughput legendary um, as my very first legendary, and that didn't get fixed until, I believe, 7.2? Um when uh, when they kind of implemented like a mass legendary rebalance um i remember you know the ma of souls running because all the legion mythic pluses gave you the exact same amount of azurite uh or not azurite uh they give you the exact Art same amount of artifact power right and so you found the quickest one and you ran that one over and over again which was ma of souls um, and all of these problems, I think, are problems that, like, could have been solved in the development phase. Um, but in a lot of ways, they're just things that, you know, when... I, I think the development phase was too focused on getting these things up and running in the first place. Um, because it was such a radical departure from the framework that it took some time to sort of, you know, put these things through the sieve and shake out the nuggets of gold that they needed um, in order to actively kind of, like, implement those changes. Um, what, what, what we've been seeing in Battle for Azeroth is a lot quicker turnaround time, right? Like, that thing with the Azerite gear that I mentioned, that's coming in 7.1, but 7.1 is actually right around the corner, so I don't think that that's, you know... I think it is a result of that, mostly. Um, but, uh, but they did hotfix the ability... They, they're, they're doing a lot through hotfixes, right? So they, like, they hotfixed the ability for Azerite gear that came in Emissaries to go up and up because they recognized it was a problem. You know, it was hard to get high-level Azerite gear with the traits that you wanted or whatever else kind of thing um, just because it, you were getting it randomly through rolls, you were getting random, you were getting it randomly through Mythic Plus um, or whatever, and so being able to um, farm those more in a more directed way through emissaries was a better change. And I think that that was a very good change, right? Especially given, like, the strength and importance of kind of, like, Azerite gear, right? If you have... And this is, like, you know, in Oldir, the raid, the only piece of Azerite gear available... Um, or there is there is one or two pieces of Azerite gear available to every class, but they were some of the only pieces of Azerite gear that scaled past... 340 that like 340 level um and mythic plus was such a fucking crapshoot right that you can never like actually target a legendary in the same way or i'm sorry you target a piece of azurite gear in the same way that you can in old year because you have bonus rolls to spend on things um and so like these systems that they are implementing now are you know like the fixes uh, that kind of come in like that i definitely think it's possible and i definitely think that we saw a lot of that in legion um but I feel as though that hasn't been the case in Battle for Azeroth for some reason. Maybe just like maybe because Legion was there to dramatically overhaul the the majority of these systems, and they carried that framework forward, they haven't really had to worry about it now. Do you know what I mean? Um, and so, the, so that is a problem. I feel like that's unique to the video games because like. 
when it's Pathfinder, you don't ha you don't have to deal with those kinds of tech problems. Um, I mean, maybe there's a version of that where you kind of say like, you can't print super complex rules because you need page space or whatever in Pathfinder. But at the end of the day, right, I feel like Pathfinder n will never really have to contend with, I would like to make this change, but, you know, there is some hurdle in the technology, in the code base, in the engineering that we can't overcome. Well, I, I, think, I think the biggest version of that is that once it's printed, there's very limited things that we can do to change the rules that are out there, right? Like, WoW could you know, tomorrow take its entire code base and replace it with what Maple story two. And like, you know, it'd be like, well, that's the update. That's 8.1 is we made everybody chibi. Um, and just, you know, clap their hands and say that, that that's done with it. Like Pathfinder doesn't have that kind of, um, that, that kind of luxury and, and on a less extreme note, right? Like you are, they are freer to make changes in wow than they are in Pathfinder, because not only can they not, like, change the, page, the words written on the page, but they don't want to invalidate any of those rules significantly, um, because, like, it's it's stuff that, you know, you don't ever want to invalidate the old products, right? Like, that's why Unchained was all optional rules um, that, that, you know, by and large were kind of, like, were neat, but didn't get totally used and integrated it was basically the only thing that like the only thing that got absorbed into core was 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 unchained summoner because the regular summoner was so screwed up um yeah i, I think that's the kind of the, the biggest quote-unquote technological um hurdle to, to tabletop games i actually um this is something that i've actually been super interested in is a pen and paper game that gets patch notes like uh like like a table like a like a video game but i just don't i don't think it works because again because it's like an like a player implementing system thing this is actually a really interesting thing because we, we've seen it right we, we as paizo puts out patch notes for the play test we can see kind of the, some of the damage here right? at least as i've seen it kind of in the forums is people being like my group meets like once every two or three weeks at most sometimes once a month and we can't keep up with all of these changes what the fuck paizo right like I feel like that would be like the biggest barrier to, to doing something like that in like a game that wasn't in play test uh, would just be yeah. like the, the, the kind of ability to, to keep every, like, you know, hell, I feel like most game knowledge is the responsibility of the GM in the first place. Like I, I think that our, since we play with one very crunchy players and two, a lot of players who also GM um, there's uh, a little bit uh, like, that's a little bit less of a problem, but like, um, you know, I've been, like, in multiple occasions, the other guy at the table that knows, like, there's a GM, and then, like, one other guy at the table knows the rules really well, and those are the two people who are, like, the sources of knowledge. Everybody else is just kind of like, I have a vague idea of how this works. Um, and, you know, trying to patch that, I think trying to patch that actually kind of, uh, how is it, you know, to go back to my old sacred contract rants, right? Like, updating the rules on the fly when a GM does it, in my mind, is kind of like a violation of the sacred contract. It's I, I know I was about to say that. Yeah, like, yeah. it's the same I thing have, the company does. I, it. When I I made changes to Hell's Rebels and I literally termed them patch notes, um, and uh, not that that was like a problem or anything kind of along those lines, but I think you know patches always you know like I mean people always say that buffing stuff is better than nerfing stuff. I don't I don't agree with that. I think that that's wrong, but. Um, the 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 kernel of truth in there 
is that when people get nerfed, it feels bad. And it creates a knee-jerk reaction of kind of like, a lot of the times like indignity um, kind of, you know, thing where something I was doing was too powerful or too whatever. And I, it almost makes me feel like I'm a bad player for, for abusing this. Right, like, and and I, I empathize with this a lot. This happened to me all the time in like, you know, in like League of Legends or something, right? Like, if I'm playing Yasuo all the time and I'm like kicking ass with Yasuo, and then Yasuo gets like nerfed a little bit, it makes me feel like I've been playing unfairly for the past couple of months. Do you know what I mean? Because like, oh, you've been playing an unfairly powerful character, right? So like, those wins that you got, those games that you dominated were a result of like bad balance tuning not because more you were than good it. yeah not because you are good right and that feels bad right yeah. and I, I don't even agree with that by the way i think that that is the wrong way to think about it because i think so many of these tuning problems are marginal in the first place right like even with an updated yasuo even with an updated whoever right um most of the time uh the you know like the game sort of played out similarly and in fact league of legends gave us really interesting information about this which is like the psychological effect of patch notes um because there was one famous patch in league of legends it was like 2.17 or something where the patch notes included nerfs to vladimir that had been well discussed well talked about on the forums but the patch but the the actual nerfs did not ship with the patch even though the patch notes did and vladimir saw a huge decrease in win rate right in a in like in accordance with those patch notes um even though he was just as strong as before because the changes had never been implemented yeah um, and there was a really long post about this by some of the designers who were talking about like um, what, how, how they picked apart that moment in their history and how interesting and informative it was to telling them about how people like talk about and react to patch notes. Because it wasn't just that, like, it was a couple of things, right? Part of it was uh, his play rates plummeted because he wasn't perceived as strong anymore, right? Um, but part of it was things where um, it looked as though people were going on tilt with him more, Um where you know you would you would lose a kill or two and you wouldn't say well i'm playing a strong late game character or whatever uh i'll be fine you said god i can't believe they nerfed nerfed vlad so hard sort of thing right that was one of the deductions uh another one was talking about how um people played more conservatively because they felt as though you know they just nerfed Vlad. I know that with the old Vlad, I could have gone all in and gotten this kill or whatever and been fine. But with the new Vlad, I'm not so sure. And that sort of, like, uncertainty and doubt created less confident play um, that has, like, less upside and stuff like that. But, yeah, I think that, that all of that stuff is, you know, the kind of psychological aspect of of how patches interact with games is something that very much hits tabletop games um, and would be hard to implement Um because, you know, to a certain extent, I think players, um, I don't know, that's a little too harsh on players, I guess. I, I think players want to protect the experience, right? They want to protect the experience that they are having. Um, and there are times when they will kind of like come into conflict with like GMs about stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. I think this is, I think this is kind of like harkens back to some of our older conversations about like rule of cool type stuff right like you let them do it once and they want to do it over and over again and i think it's a cousin of the, that problem um i just kind of wanted to add on to your lol example right like in addition to like that you know failed 
Vlad nerf, I think the kind of more neutral version of it is like, I think Twitch got a just a visual update and his like win rate shot through the roof for a couple of weeks. And like, literally there was, there was not only was there, there, there no change, but there was no like forecasted change. Right. It just like was a, like a, a, a result of kind of attention and, and, you know, things like that. I, I think that this plays into some, so this is, this is an interesting concept that I'm kind of bringing at the last minute, but I think it's interesting is that like, the games place game space isn't as explored as you think it is, right? Like, um, this is gets brought up in fighting games a lot because fighting games kind of had this competitive aspect long before the esports scene, which is where we've kind of seen this. Also, like, esports kind of has grown up in this patch patchorific world. Fighting games mm -hmm. didn't, and the way that that got dealt with is, you know, like only in very extreme cases did things get banned, and people just like played to the meta and then new tech get got discovered as as time went on and just the, the play space without any code changing the meta shifted because the play space got explored more thoroughly and in ways that people didn't expect just kind of over years of exposure um and it's a thing that i think we kind of lose a little bit of when we're we're, we're in this kind of patch culture as i'm going to put it um but it's, it's, it's an interesting thing to kind of think about, right? That No, I think that's so real. That is a very real thing. Um, the, the experience I have with that is from Hearthstone. <laughs> because um, do, do you, did you ever play with Zulok? Like, that was when you played, right? Uh, briefly, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so Zulok is just, you know, it's a very minion-based. It's low-cost minions um, with kind of... Uh, so, like, Warlock has, like, discard cards... Um, and one of the ethos besides Zulok is that you have life tap, which allows you to constantly refuel yourself. So if you are late in the game, you can be life tapping in order to draw extra cards in order to play extra, you know. But at, at, at its core, it is a very aggressive deck that wants to, like, win early, win hard. It wants to finish with stuff like, you know, um, uh, Doomguard and, you know, like Soulfire and stuff that have the, these discard elements, but the idea is your hand is empty, so it doesn't even matter if you're discarding, right? Like, getting five charging damage to face is going to, you know, is going to, like, make the difference or whatever. Um, and so, and Zulak has been a product of, uh, of like, the Hearthstone meta for a long time, right? Um, but one of the things that happened that was completely out of left field in one of the recent metas of the game is that Zulok came back, right? But it did not come back because there were any new cards. In fact, it actually pulled... People had been playing a version of the Zulok that included some of the new cards from the most recent expansions, and it was doing okay. You know, it was like a tier 3, tier 4 deck. Not very great. Not a, not a huge win rate um, or anything kind of like along those lines, but if you're a big Warlock fan, you know, it's fun. Um, but then all of a sudden, somebody realized that there was an interaction between um, a couple of classic cards that made Zulok really powerful. The specific card being Light Warden, which is a one-mana one-two that says whenever a, um, a character is healed, gain plus two attack. Um, and Voodoo Doctor, a one-mana two-one that comes into play and restores to health. Um, and then a card called Happy Ghoul that says whenever a character is healed, this card costs zero 
until the end of the turn or something like that. And so you can you can mana cheat out these happy ghouls by taking damage, healing yourself, and then you're pumping up the, the you know your light ward, and your light warden is all of a sudden a five two on turn three or whatever it is kind of thing, right? And it literally, the, all of these interactions were caused by classic cards that have always been in Hearthstone. Since the release of Hearthstone, Light Warden and Voodoo Doctor have been in the set. And they have been strong cards and they've had a strong interaction, right? But, like, nobody, just nobody saw it. And nobody knew that that was the, like, the, that was the case. And then all of a sudden, that deck is the deck that's dominating um you know when it comes in the run-up to the new expansion for like a month outward um and that kind of stuff you know that kind of stuff happens and it's it is it is crazy and i think it very much backs up what you would like what you said right like the the game space is never quite as explored as you think it is right like the metagame is and i think people you know they become slaves to you know like they, they become slaves to the meta to a certain extent i agree entirely yeah yeah absolutely um yeah uh i know that's it's it's interesting what, what do you think about um just kind of because we're kind of down this path already about like so this is a thing uh that happens in various capacities at at in, in fighting games is is uh you know like tournament level banning of of things rather than kind of like game level right like where where an organizing body decides that a certain thing is too powerful, right? Like, one of the bigger examples I can think of is Meta Knight is banned... It was banned in Italian Smash Melee tournaments, I think, was, was, was the... Uh, uh, Brawl. Yeah, Brawl. Was it Brawl? I thought it was... Yeah, I think, I'm think i pretty sure that was Brawl, because uh, Meta Knight was not in Melee. Oh, good point. Derp. Yeah. Um, but stuff like... What, what do you think of, of that kind of... Uh, 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 that kind of level of, of player feedback, right? Because that is a form of player feedback, right? There's like, a term for this that someone made up that I can't remember. I think it was called, like, you know, something like compression or something like that, which is essentially the the absolute value that you would assign a game based on its floor, the difference between... It's floor ceiling and or it's it's floor ceiling. It's skill ceiling and it's skill floor, right? Which is to say, essentially, like, what is the difference in ability between the number one player of Challenger and the very worst player in Bronze, right? Whatever the name for that is, I think is kind of what dominates this discussion because if you have, you know, like maybe I would call that like skill inequality, right? Um, where if you have a game with high skill inequality, right, where the high-level challenger player is an extremely different player than the low-level bronze player, just fundamentally speaking, right, um, the difference in skill between those two players is just, like, absolutely huge. Um, I think it makes sense to do these kinds of, like, tournament-level bans. In fact, I actually think that this is a problem that League of Legends has been grappling with for a long time. Um, to a certain extent, and then the flip side of that is that you have, if you have a game with low skill inequality, um, that you don't need to worry about that kind of thing, right? Uh, a game with low skill inequality might be something like, I mean, WoW to a certain extent is a game with low skill inequality. I actually think Hearthstone is pretty low skill inequality. Um, 
I don't think that there's a huge amount of difference between top-level Hearthstone pros and regular every Joe sorts of uh, regular every Joe sorts of players. Um, and that and that is it's also very like skill elastic. Um, if you spend a lot of time doing a lot of Hearthstone. Right, you don't have to. You don't have to time twitch reflexes. Obviously, um, you just kind of have to understand complex topics about like the game and keep track of stuff in people's hands and stuff like that. And I think that those are skills that people can kind of like pick up and put down pretty easily, right? Um, and so, like, yeah. So if I'm playing a game and that game is, you know, whatever it is, Street Fighter, Melee, whatever the most kind of, like, skill-intensive game is with, like, a really huge amount of skill inequality. When you are balancing by the top of that inequality, you have a lot of problems that can filter down to the bottom of it, right? And the, the League version of this is, you know, League balances its games based off of pro play in the LCS and, like, challenger and plat-level play, um when the kinds of play that you see in bronze and silver doesn't resemble that at all, right? And people are completely housing with characters that would never, you know, like with Master Yi, right? Who would never be anywhere near an LCS game just because he's so easily, like, counterable or, you know, skilled tricked around sort of thing. Um, and so, anyway, so if a fighting game says, we're going to ban this for top-level play... I think that is the right thing to do because you're not penalizing your low skill players, if that makes sense. Whereas if you say, okay, let me balance Meta Knight around low skill players, or I'm sorry, around high level players, low skill players with Meta Knight are now getting hosed. Huh. That's interesting. I'm not sure I agree with you because I think that you actually do want high school skill inequality in a competitive game, right? I think that if there isn't enough there, then it's, it's hard for, like, games to be hyped for lack of a better term um this is actually a big big criticism of uh of street fighter 5 is that um because they, they've like they've pulled out a lot of like the advanced tech they've pulled out a lot of like things they're called option selects which is when you when you put in a single input but based on context it does one of two different things both of which are beneficial it's kind of like a weird win-win type thing yeah. um these are things that have kind of like they're kind of like flukes of code and flukes flukes of input reading um there were a couple of powerful defensive ones in Street Fighter 4 that really defined that meta. Um, they've been regularly pulling them out of Street Fighter 5, but because they've been kind of, like, stripping out a lot of kind of, like, these unintended things, um, a lot of the top players feel like they don't have any space to kind of, like, carve out their own style because um, there's just not enough options, and you just end up having to play, like, kind of, like, the the very... Um, I don't want to say bare bones, but kind of like the, the very vanilla version of these characters. And that's not ultimately is, isn't as interesting on the top level because there's not as much room to kind of develop outward strategies or like feel out different things. And that's, I think, a very specific thing to fighting games because it relies a lot on kind of like slipperiness of of inputs and, and code in ways that, you know, even even if you're testing it, you've got like 10,000 monkeys banging against it. It's hard to, to kind of find all of those weird little interactions. Um, yeah. Uh, but I think I, th I think that's a very interesting point. Um, uh, huh. I don't know. I feel like I don't. Know. I feel like you know, banning characters, whatever. I I don't know if I have super strong feelings on that. But I also don't know if like the correct answer to bad players being able to 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 do well with an overpowered character is, is to let that character stick around, right? I think there are better options for that. 
I mean, um, so uh, I mean, this is like long time game game industry like ethos to a certain extent. Like the character of E Honda in Street Fighter Two is explicitly this, like a newbie character, sure. like a noob friendly character, where That's, you know you could win a match against a better player, right? Just by you know whatever. Hundred hand slap. Um, yeah, I, I don't know if that holds up anymore. To a certain extent, I sort of think we've moved away from that well, kind so, of logic. So, so, so there's there's a couple things there, right? Like that that's definitely Ed in Street Fighter Five. He's uh, a character that doesn't require any motions to to do his moves. They're all like double button presses, and he's he's balanced against the rest of the crew. It's just his execution barrier is lower. Like the so here's here's I guess the kind of difference, right? Like having the 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 execution skill gap be a little bit kind of fudgeable. I think is a little bit different than like kind of like the mind like the fundamentals of the mind games parts right like footsies in street fighter 5 is a lot of mind games and a lot of kind of spacing stuff and that's all independent of your ability to execute special moves at a certain point and i think that i i agree with you there right like um for instance in league of legends you don't have to put in this you, you don't whenever you hit your alt button you're doing your alt right you don't have to worry about um you know messing up the input and not coming out at the right point which is a real problem in fighting games and that kind of like I think led to the popularity for Walt was still around of um oh, what was the name of it the one the fucking Riot bought them um uh Rising Thunder um which was a game where the special moves were all single button presses and they were on cooldowns um uh and apparently there they, they there is some like Capcom does some balance around um like difficulty of input in terms of how powerful um moves can be. Um, and maybe it's not difficult if it's just kind of like Ross, like a built, like doing a charge move in street fighter is not only harder, but it also like just straight up takes more time, even at like most mastered level to do than, a than a motion input, a motion input being a, like a quarter circle motion, a, a charge move being like a hold back press forward in, the, in a punch or whatever. Um, and so that's, that's, I don't know. That's, I think that's kind of like two different vectors, but I see your point. Yeah. Oh, I yeah, I don't know. Um, I don't really, I don't have some up thoughts for this. I just think yeah. it's a really interesting. It's yeah. like a really interesting interaction. Um, yeah, because nobody nobody is ever quite right or quite wrong. Yeah, I mean, I think there are some there's some things that are that are definitely wrong, which is you know, drive your game into the ground regardless of, of any feedback. Um, I don't know if we've had any of those recently, but, uh, you know. But I think I think you're definitely right in general, right? Like it, it's a thing that you have. It, it's it's a careful tightrope that needs to be walked in order to make sure that uh, in order to make sure that you're not uh, doing anything like you're not giving too much power to to smaller vo- to to you know smaller voices and um, not also like plugging your ears and ignoring big problems that that are they're staring you in the face. Um, yeah. Well. Anyway, how was your week? Boy, that's a good question. How was my week? Uh, I have been fighting the urge to get Soul Calibur Six all week. Ah. That's, that's the big one. Um, I'm a big fan of Soul Calibur. Uh, like my a lot of my fighting game kind of experience boils down to Soul Calibur because that was the game that I played like a ton of. Um, and I even went to tournaments in New York City. I used to take the train into New York when I was like 12 to, to fight people as Mitsurugi. In when two? everybody was playing Talim and kick and kicking the shit out of me. Um, 
So yeah, so now that so Soul Calibur Six is out, I really want to play it, but I also don't want to spend sixty bucks for a game that I'm probably not going to go like super hard with. All my friends have been playing it and doing like the custom, you know, like the custom character stuff, because uh, that's like one of the big draws of the game these days. Um, I am also resisting the urge to like go out and spend four hundred dollars on a PS4 so I can play Red Dead, um, just because everybody's also playing that game and talking about that game, so. Lots of urges to spend money that I am successfully resisting so far. Ah, that's interesting, because I've been playing Soul Calibur 6 and Red Dead Redemption 2. Have uh, you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so Soul Calibur, uh, you know, I, I try and pick up these fighting games because I've got a deep interest in them, um, as we've talked about a, a bit. Um, I have a lot more trouble, like, with, with 3D fighting games than you with, like, 2D, because 3D fighting games always have, like, a thousand more moves, half of which you're supposed to ignore. Um, I think Soul Calibur has probably like the most flexible like movement system. Um, it's just it's just fundament like I you know my fundamentals were built in 2D fighting games, and you have to change so many of them. Um, I haven't even played any online matches. I've just spent two hours in the character creator. I've been playing the Librem of Souls mode, which is their their story mode, which is the most atrociously written thing I have ever read. It is so like the writing is like a four year old like, tried to write, like, the most basic story and still managed to fuck it up. It's... <laughs> <laughs> that sucks, guys. One of my favorite parts about Soul Calibur 2 was they had a, like, a really neat interactive story mode. Yeah, yeah, Weapon this? Master. Yeah, the Weapon yeah. Master mode, because, like, you were moving through the map, and depending on, like, what... I guess, like, the map had a bunch of nodes on it or yeah. whatever, and you could choose which nodes to go through. Um and you were getting new weapons, and your weapons changed, you know, how your character played. God, that stuff was so fucking cool! Yeah. Um, this, so. has, this has a lot of the same stuff. It's just, you know, the, the writing is, is god-awful. Um, <laughs> Who's your character of choice? Tell me it's Voldo. It is or not. No, it's Yoshimitsu. It's what? Who do you think it is? Yoshimitsu. So... Back in two, I used to play a lot of Yoshimitsu, right? Like he, I fucking knew it. That was such a that's such a mango character. No, he's definitely like the one I like the most in terms of like style, or yeah, like not he's style. All goofy. Yeah, but he's a stance character, and I can't like I can't handle that much information at once. So like when I'm playing, I mostly play Astaroth because he's the grappler type. Um, oh man, I actually love Astaroth. Astaroth was always my big fan. So I used to play like in my in with my friends. Um, there was. Um, like team mode where you would set a lineup um, of eight characters yeah, yeah. and then you know like move through move through and Astroth was always my finisher um, yeah. because I felt like a lot of the time like all all you really needed to do a lot of the time like let's say you get into like you get down to your eighth character a lot of the time you can just like hit somebody once and just like whap a whole chunk of their HP off um, and a lot of the time that would like win me win me stuff and like that. I really like Astroth. Uh, I really like Astroth a lot. Yeah. See, so my my big thing when I was playing with my brother a lot was uh, was uh, was Raphael. Um, I guess we just like didn't understand like how to sidestep at all because like the kind oh, of like his like his top three vertical dot yeah, dot dot yeah. thing. Yeah. We couldn't fit like it was it was always like an instant lockout. It was like infuriating for the whoever whoever was on the receiving end of it because you couldn't figure out how to get out of it. Um, uh. But yeah, um, what else? Like, I also have a soft spot for uh, Maxi, uh, just because uh, like the nunchucks, like, just kind of, it probably is less smooth than it is in my memory. But it's kind of like the ability, to kind of, to in infinitely chain attacks together and just kind of like dance across the battlefield. Always felt fun. 
Um, Maxi, yeah, Maxi is a character that I always wanted to be good with, but I never could get there. Just because, like, it's not like Ivy in that game was, oh, yeah. was really hard. Um, because, like, all of her really good moves were built around chaining these things together in, like, really long and complex combos that I just couldn't, you know, put together. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's some, like, like the... Uh, uh, it's it's really neat to just screw around the character because I don't really like Astaroth's kind of uh, vibe, as it were, right? Like I am I am much more a goody two shoes. So like, one you can go to the character creator and you can like, uh, you can change the stock, like you can put equipment on the regular characters, right, and, and change up their their outfits and stuff, which is really yeah. neat. Um, uh, I have I have it on good authority that the top use for it is to pull off Raphael's glasses because they look fucking stupid. Um, <laughs> um, and then you can also like build your own characters that, uh, um, that use the moveset, right? So I've got like, there's like 12 races too. It's crazy. Um, but I have a, a, a Colossus dressed up kind of like a pirate that uses the Astaroth moveset. Um, I like it a lot. So it's, it's, uh, it's definitely a good time. Plus like the wacky stuff you see people doing online. My favorite thing was uh i was scrolling through like the so the interface for like pick seeing other people's custom characters is god awful but um it's like it pops up and you have to like scroll through them one at a time and you can't like go back it's there's like no like search function or anything it's 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 really atrocious but um uh you know i like scrolling through and there's 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 like a bunch of uh like people making versions of like popular characters right like um and there was one for uh, 2B, right? Like, uh, uh, you know, from uh, Near Automata. Um, right. And there's been a bunch of them, and they've been kind of passed around the internet. And then, like, yesterday, they announced that she's going to be a guest character in the game. Uh, so we'll, we'll actually get her, like, for real in the game. And everybody's excited because you'll probably be able to make um, 9S and, uh, what was it, A6? I forget. Like, make the other characters from Near in the game using her moveset and her base stuff. Uh, so everybody's pretty hype about that. Um, uh, Red Dead Redemption 2, on the other hand, has been uh, a kind of a, a really interesting experience. Um, it's really pretty. Um, this one feature that I didn't think I would care a lot about is... So um, you can hold down a button and it goes into what's called cinematic mode. And mm -hmm. uh, as you're moving, the camera kind of pans around you like it's a Western film, and they fucking nailed it. It looks perfect. And it doesn't, like, I don't ever use it when I'm actually actively doing anything. But there are a lot of missions where, like, you'll be riding along in a group, and you'll be following other people, and you just hold the button to do that. And you'll be having conversations while it's happening. And so instead of the camera being behind me, I just hold the cinematic button and, like, like hold the, the ride along button and just, like, let it play out in front of me. It looks like a Western. And I fucking love it. Um, that's interesting. That's actually tech that they had in Grand Theft Auto five, but it was really awful because like you would activate cinematic mode and it would make your car and you like, and you were driving your car. Right. right. But the thing is, is that like you, you're not, you're, this is the true of any open world game with like a vehicle, um, that, like with like roads and stuff like that. You are always incentivized to stay on the roads on a car, obviously. 
Um, but the way like driving typically works is you're not moving at a normal, you're going as fast as you possibly can. And so like when you activate cinematic mode and you're not looking where you're going, you instantly crash like every time. <laughs> So, you know, I remember when Grand Theft Auto V came out, I was like, why? And it's a really important button, too, if I remember correctly. It's like one of the face buttons or something like that. And so, it's very easy for you to accidentally hit it and find yourself in cinematic mode. And then, like, tumble off a cliff or something. <laughs> because, like, you know, you, you enter cinematic mode and it, like, shows you your wheel from a from up front and i'm like listen if this was a fast and the furious movie i think this shot would be great okay but we're in grand theft auto and it's a guardrail and i'm plowing through it and i'm wasted thanks like, yeah, yeah. No, I, so that is really funny because that's just really funny <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm definitely not using it when i'm actually actively controlling anything it's only when i'm like following stuff um a little bit sometimes when i'm like following the road although that doesn't work as well as it did in the witcher um uh, like the the kind of like hold the button and your horse just runs along the road type stuff, um, but it mostly works. Um, and like I said, when you're when you're in like a group and you're just kind of following along, it works. It works great. Um, it looks really pretty. Um, also, some some interesting stuff. There's no fast travel. There's like stage coaches, but they're like to very specific points, and you have to like go. Oh, to the, nice. Um, and I love that. I think fast travel is uh, is typically a killer of games for me sometimes um so you know, like yeah yeah i, I definitely feel like, 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 like with skyrim i can't fast travel if i ever start fast traveling in skyrim i immediately lose focus and can't play anymore right because it's too easy and it's not and like the like the immersive majesty that is skyrim right uh, like doesn't work for me if I'm fast traveling. So, but I can use because they have stagecoaches in that game too, where you can travel between any of the different cities. Um, and so I like, and so you know, you can use those to get around the map. So what I the, the thing I think that really sells it is that there are random events that pop up in between, and they happen at like the perfect rate, so that like you'll get like one, maybe two on a long journey. Um, and you can choose to ignore them if you want, and you can choose to kind of go off and interact with them. Um, and it definitely hits kind of like the right balance of, you know, this is a, you know, this is a thing I want to do on the way to something else. And like, maybe I'll ignore it. And it, and, uh, I think another important part of it too, is that, um, you know, horses are such an integral part of the game that you're like, like you always have at least that rate of speed. I feel like Skyrim suffers a little bit from the fact that, you know, it's, it's slower. You're on you're on foot for 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 the beginning part of the game. Um, if I had to be on foot for Redemption, I think I would shoot myself. Um, it is it is, the walking speeds are a little bit slow, and you control a little clunky, which is fine because you're mostly on the horse. Um, but like the worst part of the game for me is walking across your home camp because not only do you have to walk, but they like significantly like they keep you from sprinting. So like you just have to like mosey across the camp. It's just like God damn it move just like a little bit faster and I'll be all right. Um, especially for like when you have to deal with somebody who's on the edge of the camp instead of the, in, the, in the middle of the camp. But uh, it's still very fun. Um, it's totally my jam in terms of like, I love guns from that era, right? Like, you know, bolt action, lever action, kind of revolvers, that kind of stuff is, is, is just so much fun to me. Um, uh, so I've been uh, having, having a great time with that. Um, like before we started recording, I was, 
literally sitting and playing Texas Hold'em uh, for a quest, uh, which was neat. Um, there's some things that I'm, I'm not so sure, like, like one of the things you can do to gain, like, respect in your camp is you can do chores. Um, and, you know, that's neat. It's like a little thing I do every once in a while, but it's also kind of like the worst gameplay. Like, is literally you pick up a, uh, like, you pick up a sack and you walk very slowly across the camp and then you put it down in the place where it needs to be. <laughs> and it's like, congratulations, you've done a chore. And I'm like, why am I doing chores in this video game? I, I, I don't play video games to do chores. I do video games because I don't want to be doing chores. Is there, um, is there a story? Like, what's the, what's the, okay, like so, the impulse for the story mode? So you're playing as Arthur Morgan, um, who I believe is one of the characters from the last game because John Marston shows up very early. I don't know if I don't think that's a spoiler. It's, it's very early. Um, okay. You have to you have to go help him. Um, and you haven't interacted with him much. Um, is so you played through the first one, right? Yeah. I never did. Is I I know kind of like the 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 ending is right. It's like your character dies and you play as his son and he gets revenge, right? Yeah, John Marston dies, and then you play as Jack Marston, his son. To, oh, interesting, uh, huh? To finish out the game. Very interesting, because um, John Marston. Uh, so the what what has happened in in the the game is, um, uh, at some point in the past, John has abandoned Dutch and the crew for a year, and he's come back. Uh, is, is that something that happens in the as, game? Is Dutch? Dutch is like your, in the your, game. Yeah, he's like your leader. Oh my god, that's really cool. So okay, okay. So Red Dead Redemption One is all about killing Dutch, right? John Marston is out of the game. He's a rancher, and then two guys from the federal government come and they say, "Hey, listen, we have all this evidence of all the crimes that you've committed, right?" Um, and I think it's actually the 1900s. I think it's like 1905 or something like that. Um, oh, a, so this is a like, prequel. Maybe? Yeah, this is a prequel then. And so, and he's like, but we want to kill your old gang leader, uh, what's his face? Dutch? Um, Dutch, I just said it. Um, we, you know, he's he has this new gang, they're terrorizing or whatever, so your mission is to kill Dutch or else we're going to prosecute you and, you know, like, fuck your shit up. And so John Marston has to go be a cowboy again to, to go kill Dutch in order... In order to like, I think it's like to not lose the farm or something along those kinds of lines, um, and uh, and I think he does successfully kill Dutch, but then he dies afterwards or something like that. But the really interesting thing is that like, so the game is super satirical, right? Um, so like, like basically everybody is satirized except for Dutch, who is played dead straight as kind of like the lost cowboy archetype. Um, as, and, and, like, his whole gang is is filled out with Native Americans um, that have been, like, displaced and fucked on by, like, the federal government and stuff like that. And so, like, at, like you have this whole game where a lot of people are, um, are essentially kind of, like, caricatures or they're, like, satirizing some, like, stereotype, right? Like, there's this Mexican outlaw that you're working with and... Right, but he's a huge piece of shit, and then the Mexican dictator is also a huge piece of shit, and like all this other sorts of all this other sort of stuff. But then you meet Dutch, and he is there, and he's like, you know, the West was not made for civility. These people are killing what made it great, you know, and I'm not going to surrender to 
the you know like the civilization of like the west or whatever and he is a dead it's like he's talking to the camera you know a lot of it where he's just saying like i want to be a cowboy right like and i want to live the wild west life and the wild west and the wild west life is strip is being stripped from me and i refuse to let that happen and that's like the core conflict and i think that that's really cool and it's one of the reasons i think red dead is such a good game um, so the idea that you get to come and interact with the Dutch is awesome. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, 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 I'm looking at the Wikipedia page and it says it's a prequel, um, which is super interesting. I think it takes place in 1899. Okay. Um, if I remember correctly, that's, that's super interesting. I, I, I didn't realize that you're busy, um, you're trying to kill Dutch in the first one. That's, that's really interesting because he's, he's kind of played as like the, like charismatic, but like you know, you know, scoundrel with a heart of gold type, right? Like that, you know, the, he really believes that he's doing good, even though he's like, you know, doing crimes and killing people. Yeah. He's like ultimately a good guy is kind of how he's played. Um, and like kind of one of the themes is that like the age of the, of the old West, the legend of the old West is coming to an end. Um, and like, maybe like, what are, what are we doing here? Um, that's really, that's really interesting. Huh? Well, I'll have to see how that goes then. Um, so I guess that year that that John Marston has left the group must be pre um, this. Is is there an Arthur Morgan character in Red Dead Redemption One? I actually don't remember. Um, there are there are a lot of different characters in uh, there are a lot of different characters in Red Dead Redemption One who kind of like show up. Uh, a lot of them are like archetypes of some variety or another um you know i'm looking it up i actually don't see yeah he does not seem to be uh, he does not seem to be in red dead redemption one yeah um interesting uh doesn't look. I can't see him as being in, uh, in 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 the first game. So he must he must just be at it, which makes sense. I think he's like an older and more experienced member of the of the crew. I also have to believe that that means he's gonna like die at the end of this game, which makes sense. Um. Uh. Do I'm trying not to spoil myself on it. Um. But yeah. Um. Eighteen ninety nine is definitely when when the game takes place. Okay, um, yeah, and then 12, so 1911 must be when Red Dead Redemption 1 takes place, because I'm reading it says 12 years after. Yeah, okay, so that's, like, so, right yeah. at the end of the, uh, uh, like, so I, I was curious, so I went and looked at it, and, like, the Legend of the Old West is, like, 17, like, turn of the, turn of the century, 1800s to, like, 1915. Um, yeah. It's interesting. I don't know, this, this is kind of, like, only vaguely related, but, like, you know, starting to play this game and maybe really want to play a tabletop version of of the old west and then it's like you know and that's like this like you know i've i, I always kind of associated with steampunk and like it's weird to me that like the victorian era and the cowboy era are like the exact same eras but like in different places right like 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 you know the old the old west is the american victorian period which is just super weird to me yeah um, but super cool. Yeah, that is actually kind of weird. And it's funny that we get so many, like, steampunky kind of, uh, like, 
you know, we get so so many steampunky London games, and we never get like a steampunk Western game. It feels like. Uh, I mean, did uh, you in, remember like, Wild Wild West starring Will Smith? <laughs> I mean, I do, and I I have a, a an unabashed love for that movie. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, S- yeah, speaking but, yeah. of movies, Ooh. I have an unabashed love for. Um, I went and saw uh, today. Actually, I saw uh, Bad Times at the El Royale. Oh, how was that? It was Drew Goddard. Hmm. Sorry, Drew Goddard. It's, it's, sorry, is I just, the director? That's the name of the director. Yeah. Has he done anything else? He did Cabin in the Woods. Is the big famous oh, okay. one. He also did the first season of Daredevil. I'm not a huge fan of Drew Goddard. Drew Drew Goddard. Um, but uh, but yeah, you know he's been he's been around the block. He's been all over projects. This is one of the first big um, kind of you know one of the first big projects that he really took. Uh, like took for himself. Yeah. Um, he he wrote Cloverfield. I think that was the first thing that like really um, like brought him, him the into the yeah like put him on the map. Yeah. Yeah. So I really like the movie. So I I like movies that are kind of like oozing with style. And this movie has style, but it's not oozing with it, right? Like I like Coen Brothers. I like Wes Anderson. Um, this is less that, but still has a fair amount of style. Um, and it's it's just super super interesting right like it's 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 a weird kind of like comedy of coincidences in some level right like there's like five or six people at this hotel all there for different reasons and they're like plots are just inter intertwining in the worst ways and just screwing each other over um but it's really well done it's set well to the music which is always a big thing for me um there's a it's there's like a a big it's not like a twist per se because it, it, it's, it's a revelation about one of the characters backstories that just like really kind of like flips your whole perspective on who he is um that really caught me by surprise and i really appreciated um just the the whole the, the whole thing is just super fun to watch if if you for people at home who you don't know um kind of the the thing that that you know going into it or like you know within the first couple of minutes is uh, somebody buried uh, or hid a, a suitcase full of money in the floor of the El Royale ten years ago, um, and now four people have showed up, um, and that's actually only one of the threads. The other four are like completely unrelated to that. Um, there's the guy who runs the front desk, like there's the bellboy who runs the front desk. There's um, a, a, a black singer um, who's on her way to, to sing in Reno because she's kind of um, the, the, she she because she couldn't make it in show business is I think the way it's supposed to be portrayed. Um, there's like a girl who shows up and just like is just like wants room and is being really aggravated like really kind of bitchy and uh, then like a, a, a vacuum salesman who is the most obnoxious person on the planet. Um, <laughs> and uh, it just goes from there. It's 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 really great. Like things turn like like uh, uh, I won't spoil it, but like one of those characters turns out to be very different from the person. Oh, and then um, the other person who shows up is Jeff Bridges playing a priest, um, Father David Flynn. Uh, one of those characters turns out to be not anything like he said he is, and it's not like in the trailer. Jeff Bridges says, I'm not a priest. Um, and it's not that one. That's not the one I'm talking about. Uh, but very quickly, uh, things change uh, and, and spin around. Um, 
And it's got like a, it, it just really satisfying. I highly recommend it to everyone. I had a little trouble finding it in theaters at this point. It's like a couple weeks out. It came out on the twelfth, I think. Um, but if you can get it on like uh, uh, what would it be like instant access in the, in the next couple weeks streaming, I would highly recommend it. That's cool. Yeah, I don't know. That yeah. is uh, that is super cool. Um, you know, you speaking also of movies that we like i can't remember what how we phrased it but uh teen titans go to the movies came out <laughs> and i bought it and watched it <laughs> of course he did and i just i just wanted to share that i do you remember the upbeat song about life vaguely yeah yeah the michael bolton song yeah, 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 yeah. with them running like the tiger with the guitar over yep, yeah yeah no i, I <laughs> like i like I remember loving this movie, obviously. We just watched it three months ago. Yeah, yeah. Right? And it was so funny to me how much I found new and funny in the <laughs> in rewatching it. And that was that was like the big one. I was like, oh I remember this song, but I had completely forgotten that it ends with them running him over. And then Cyborg goes, I think his dad's a cop! Run! <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. You know, I really hope Aquaman is great. I think Aquaman looks amazing, but boy, I feel like Teen Titans Go to the Movies might be my favorite movie of the year. Just like it's so good. Uh, <laughs> you know what else I've been watching? God, we don't have any time to talk about this, but I do want to talk about this. I've been watching a lot of lawyer movies from the 90s. <laughs> Oof, like... Have you, have you seen um, Have you seen any of these... Um, a Few Good Men? Uh, it's... Well, uh, so, yeah, I did watch A Few Good Men. Um... That was kind of like what started me on this like kick to a certain extent. Uh, so the uh, the Wired YouTube channel has this thing called like technique critique where they get a linguist in and he talks about people's dialects in in like and accents and fake languages in movies, just like anything about like language right, in right. movies. And it is fucking fascinating. It's so cool. And I ended up kind of going on this like kick of like watching YouTube videos of like prominent professionals in their field addressing how movies display yeah. their profession. Um, and I ended up doing, uh, and I ended up looking at one, I guess Legal Eagle has a has a lawyer who talks about like lawyers in movies or whatever. And I had no idea. I, cause I, you know, I know um, a few good men because of Alan Sorkin and, you know, you can't handle the truth, but I never really understood the context of it. So I actually like, so I watched it front to back and now I understand like the full context. I watched 12 angry men. Um, I've been watching the rainmaker. Um, and anyway, and all these like prominent, like lawyer movies. Um, are you, are you like a fan of like lawyer movies? Like, I know you get like really into like the Supreme court and stuff like that. Yeah, no. Um, that's a relatively recent thing on my part. So, I haven't been as deep into kind of like the classic stuff. Um, I watched Liar Liar. Uh, I think it's it's either Liar Liar or Big Fat Liar. The one where Jim Carrey has to tell the truth for like 24 hours. Yeah, 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 yeah. I remember um, that movie. That's the most prominent lawyer movie that I can remember having watched. Um, or that or like The Mighty Ducks. Because that counts as a lawyer movie, right? Um, no way. Really? <laughs> it really doesn't. But um, Gordon Bombay is, is a lawyer. Uh and then he gets caught huh. driving and he has to coach the ducks. So it really has nothing to do with being a lawyer. It just comes back in um, the third movie because, like, I think he, like, 
like he's not part of he's not a major part of the movie but he like shows up in like a cameo to prevent them from like losing their scholarship somehow using uh -huh. like legal magic i don't i don't know i haven't been a long time since i've seen the mighty ducks and uh i think they're not actually good i just you know i feel like i read somewhere that they're not actually good and i feel like i just want to like leave my like precious childhood memories intact um and just not ruin it for myself so maybe i'll just never watch the mighty ducks again I watched this movie so many times when I was a kid because my brother was really into hockey. Um, you know, I remember them being vaguely yeah. uplifting. I completely, I know, I super feel that. I feel like lawyer movies um, are kind of like cheap drama, which yeah. is why I think, by the way, they ended up moving to television. Um, Makes sense. For like Ally McBeal and like Boston Legal or whatever, because you can just center an episode around, you know, like, oh, let's win this weird case, this win this coming you yeah, know, yeah. case or whatever sort of thing. Um, and in a certain sense, I almost think that there's something a little bit more to it um, in the sense of, like, I sort of kind of wonder if there's some sort of, like, falling effect of, um, you know, like, like genres kind of fall through movies into television. Because that seems actually kind of compelling to me. But anyway... Um, this all kind of started because Better Call Saul, which is obviously a lawyer show and a very good lawyer show, um, uh, and uh, and so and so that that's the that's the other thing that I've been doing this week is watching is watching fucking lawyer movies. There there aren't a lot of recent lawyer movies, also. It feels like, yeah. So I I feel like I wouldn't be as big of a fan of lawyer movies because like the things that interest me about the law are kind of like technical considerations and like the shape and the feel of the law. And, like, every lawyer movie is some variation of, like, you know, this is the law, but I have to not do it because of reasons um, or something like that, right? Or, like, you know, basically it can't be, like, too technical because otherwise no one would care to watch it, right? Like, so uh, I feel I feel like there, that's not something I particularly enjoy, but maybe I'll check out. Yeah, I mean, that's that's something that I learned about A Few Good Men, like if the like that dramatic courts room you know he's on the witness stand and he says that you can't handle the truth thing or whatever right like that it, not only so like there's a certain amount of it that's like okay you never like that that would never happen in real life just because people coach their witnesses right and their witnesses um you know uh you like only answer certain types of questions and stuff like that but just from a perspective of like what could anyone do in a court right everyone is in contempt of court because they're all like yelling at each other and the yeah. drama works out obviously right but it's just like it doesn't make any sense at all when it comes to um in, in fact this is kind of what i was talking about when we were talking about lincoln forever ago that i thought was really interesting about like lincoln as like a political movie because it did get like wonky you know, and he's sitting and he's talking about like, well, you know, if I let this thing happen, then the Supreme Court is going to come back into session and they're going to, you know, they're going to strike it down or whatever, you know, like, or whatever else kind of thing. And so, you know, Lincoln makes a very real and complex political case for why he needs to pass the 13th, 14th and 15th Amendments now, right, uh, versus after the reconciliation of um, – uh, after, like, the reconciliation at, like, the end of uh, of the Civil War. And I like that it wasn't willing to kind of, like, shy away from the truth of that 
situation, right? It wasn't just like, oh, we need to pass this because it's the right thing to do. It's like, no, like, yeah. that's the, yeah, like, that's the cheap answer, I feel like. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <sighs> well, I feel like we, we, we've run over a bit, so I, I feel like that's, that's about it for today's show. If you'd like to uh, write to us and tell us what you think about player feedback or a few good men or any of the other things we talked about on the show, you can reach us at some derps play games at gmail.com um, or uh, some or podcast at some derps play games.com. You follow us at twitch.tv slash some play games, even though we haven't played in forever. Um, uh, these episodes go up on YouTube link in the description. Um, leave us likes and subscriptions everywhere. Comments uh, on YouTube or not YouTube on, on iTunes reviews. Uh, smash that like button jackhammer that subscribe yeah <laughs> um and uh last note um if any of you are going to be at metatopia next week i'm going to be there so if you see me say hi um all three of you who listen to this podcast if you happen to be in the new jersey area um <laughs> <laughs> um uh so yeah i think that's everything i had buddy do you have anything else you want anything else that you wanted to promote I have nothing else that I'm looking to promote. In that case, until next time, dear listeners. Until next time, loyal listeners.